The reading this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 and 9. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. That can be found on page 586 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the speechless, in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. We are thankful that you're here. Uh, you encourage us, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. As we think about the end of this month, we think about in four weeks, we'll have We Are the Sermon Day. That has become one of the good highlights of the year where we, by the hundreds, go out into the community and we strive to do good for individuals or organizations in the community. And as we do that good, it's for one great purpose, and that is in serving them that God would receive the glory. Because we've done this for many years now, it's become a part of our culture. And, and even throughout the year, many of these organizations contact us, or some of you have contacted them, and we've continued to serve. And just last month, someone brought up to me fact and said, you may not realize how much our school appreciates the Mount Juliet Church of Christ, but the work that you guys do year after year in our school is noticed by the teachers and you are spoken highly of. It's wonderful when the Lord's church is spoken highly of. If the Mount Julia Church of Christ ceased to exist tomorrow, would anyone in the community notice or care? If we truly are the neighbors that God calls us to be, the answer to that in any community would be yes. And so we set out, because of the glory of God, to be the best neighbors of any neighbors in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. And so as you go to Bible class today, your classes will be talking about what good works and projects that you want to do. We want to encourage you to pick a project or projects enough that everybody in your class can be involved in it. But number two, we want to encourage you to pick projects that pertain to the community. 52 weeks a year we serve each other, but we want to make sure that we also serve others. And so this particular day is a great opportunity to serve others. So plan it, lock it in next week, and then you have two weeks to get your supplies and signed up and all of that, and glory be to God. Adoption. There are many of you as individuals and as families in this very room right now that your lives have been powerfully and wonderfully touched through adoption. You received a church-wide correspondence last week for those of you that wanted to submit pictures and, and let's just for a moment rejoice in how blessed we are through the idea of adoption. Thank you. 
from above through the spirit of never ending love and I'm the first to declare my longing thirst for the water that comes from God for adoption. It's powerfully touched our lives and we hope that every person in this room is touched by the opportunity of adoption. Whether it's to open your own home and heart up, but at least open your heart and then your prayers and your support of those that can open up their home. But also we hope that everyone here is touched by adoption because spiritually, if every one of us here aren't adopted into God's family, God being our Heavenly Father, we're missing out on the really life, the great life, the eternal life that is waiting for us. The spirit of adoption cries out, Abba, Father. And we all want to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ through adoption. Adoption is such a better solution than abortion. Today we talk about a difficult and controversial topic. We talk about a topic that means so much more and is approached from a different perspective for those who are believers in God and those who are faithful Christians. Those that understand that our origin goes back to God as the creator and that human life is truly made after the image of God. So therefore... There is sanctity of life because of our origin. There would be many of us in this audience that would find it very hard to truly accept the fact 
that abortions take place all around us and that they're legal. But that is the case. As we think about this, I'd like for you to think with me this morning in the beginning. Why? How did we get to this place in America where on one hand we would say that we're a civilized nation, yet on the other hand, abortion is spoken so openly as if it's not something dark or negative or evil. I'm not suggesting to you that everything about where we are today goes back 50 years ago, but much of where we are today as Americans does go back 50 years ago, although abortions would go back thousands of years. But it was in the 1960s when the sexual revolution perhaps would have no idea of the effect that they would have on America with this revolution for the decades to come. And I would suggest that probably very few of anyone in America would realize the effect that it would have. But one of the great cries was the two words, free love. One aspect of approaching that was the idea that we're free to practice our sexuality in any way we want, and it's no one's place to judge. In other words, the idea that human sexuality ought to be practiced within the confines of marriage, as taught in Genesis, the second chapter, was lifted up and out of that boundary and said, no one should judge if we want encounter after encounter in any way that we would like for that to be. We are free to love and express that love in any way that we want. But then there was a second element that was on the backside, if you will, of that about free love. And it was that this love ought to be free of consequences. And what some had said for many decades before the 60s, even though I do not believe it to be true, what was being said was that men were free from the consequences. They could go and encounter after encounter encounter and they would never have consequences they have to deal with and yet women would. And so the oral contraceptive of the pill and then when that failed, abortion is what in their argument made it possible for women to have the same rights as men so that they could be free of any unwanted consequences such as unwanted pregnancies. A lady that is considered Betty Friedan, she sparked the beginning of the second wave of feminism in the U.S. in the 1960s. And I give you a quote from her in that day and time. And she said, Women are not equal to men unless they are rid of childbearing responsibilities. Women must have abortion as a backup to contraceptive failure. Contraceptives first, and if that doesn't work, then abortion, because we can't be bothered with children. We've got to go to work and make our way in a man's world. And it was out of this mindset of we must be free of the consequences of free love is how abortion got its first major steps out of the back alleys in America and into the forefront of not only people's conversation, but literally, literally their lives. Over 40% of women, by the time they're 45 years of age in America, will have had an abortion. And so today we do not speak of this in a callous 
way knowing that there are many in this audience that have been affected directly by abortion. There are many men that have been directly affected because you've commanded your daughter to have an abortion. You've driven someone you love to a clinic. You've paid for it. And so today is not an effort to bring up scars and regrets as if to make you feel guilty for something that God has already forgiven you for. But today is a day that we must speak for the speechless. We must be a voice for morality. We must be a voice for that which is right. No matter what culture or civilization says it isn't, and no matter how many argue against it, God's way must rule. So where did this begin? How far back does this go? This idea that murder is a solution for unwanted consequences. You might be surprised to think about it this way, but really it goes back to the very beginning. You remember Genesis, the fourth chapter? You remember when God spoke to Cain and Abel and told them the way that they were to offer? And some of you are saying, wait a minute, I know my Bible. It doesn't say he spoke. Yes, it does, because Hebrews, the 11th chapter, tells us that he, Cain offered his sacrifice by faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. He heard what God wanted, and he offered what God asked. But Cain also heard what God wanted, but he did not offer what God asked. And so the result was God had no respect for Cain or for his offering, and it made Cain very mad that God wouldn't respect him, that God wouldn't take his offering. And so God comes down and talks to him and asks him, why are you angry? And even gives him the opportunity to repent and to submit. And he refuses to do it. And God even says, don't you know I'll take you back? But if you don't, don't you know that sin waits at the door? And he decided not to repent, not to submit, and go through the door that led to sin. Well, what sin did it lead to? Look, if you will, in Genesis, the fourth chapter, and verse 8, and let's see these principles. In Genesis 4 and verse 8, Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? And then God answers his own question here. The voice of your brother's blood cries out from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Number one, we see that he really believed that murder was going to be the solution to some consequences that he didn't like to face. Number two, we see that his attitude was one of irresponsibility. He literally said to God, am I my brother's keeper? When, when we read the rest of the Bible, we know that God's answer would have been, yes, you are. You have a responsibility to those around you. But then number three, something is revealed to us about the sanctity of human life that is powerful. And that is, if I murder someone in the darkness and in the privacy where no one else sees, does God know? And here we know that any time a crime has been committed, the most capable prosecution is based upon a witness. 
And God tells Cain, the blood of your brother that you have shed and it has sipped into the ground, the ground will open up and that blood will testify. In other words, that blood will be an eyewitness against you of what you have done. Can you imagine on the day of judgment how many people are going to be surprised that the blood of the ones that they had shed is going to speak against them? We go to the very next book in the Bible. Exodus, the first chapter, we see Pharaoh, now the one that wasn't the Pharaoh that linked up with Joseph, but another that didn't know Joseph or appreciate the children of Israel or trust them. And so as the children of Israel grew in power, he was fearful that they would one day have enemies, Egypt's enemies to come, and that they would side with those enemies and that they would do damage in taking over Egypt. And so he wanted to destroy future warriors and so what he did was he gave a command to the midwives. Look in Exodus, the first chapter, verse 16. When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. Now notice the contrast here. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but saved the male children alive. What do we have here? We have the same principle, the belief that murder is going to solve future consequences that you don't want to deal with. But then number two, we see that there's a contrast in thinking. That's what one person thought, but then the midwives thought something differently. Why? Why did one person think that murder was going to be the answer for unwanted consequences and others said, absolutely not. I don't care if you're the king of our land. I am not participating in this. Why? Because they feared God. The midwives believed that God's creation of life was one to be respected and protected. You see, we could go throughout the scriptures. We could even look in Jesus' day where Herod killed the little baby boys. And what we could ask ourselves over and over is things like this. Abel, but Cain was innocent. Pharaoh, those baby boys were innocent. Herod, those baby boys were innocent in Bethlehem and in the district that surrounded them. And even today, we can look at babies and they are so innocent. Why are so many aborted? The black and white of the situation, it is an emotionally volatile subject. Those promoting abortion are going to, number one, demand the woman's rights only, not the child's. They're going to demand that the fetus isn't a child. They're going to demand that the delivering of an unwanted child is worse than abortion. They're going to demand abortion is a sensible choice. And they're going to picture a happy woman without the inconveniences of pregnancy. But on the flip side of this, there's number one, those opposed to abortion is going to demand that the ch child has rights too. Number two, demand that the fetus is an unborn child. Number three, demand murder is unacceptable and adoption is a much better solution. Number four, it's not just immoral, it's intolerable. Life is a sensible choice. And number five, 
It's interesting to note that this is so barbaric that neither side wants to show what takes place in pictures or to demonstrate. When abortion is taking place, that's not pictured. And yet even in an audience here where, where we would say we are not pro-abortion, we're pro-life. But yet will I show you pictures this morning? of what it looks like to take the life of an infant? No. Because most here would say, David, that's unacceptable. You can't show pictures like that. And the only reason I bring this up is to say, if you don't want to picture it, are you convincing yourself it's not happening? Do you just tell yourself there's not eight clinics in Tennessee that do this all year long, all day long? Or is it more comfortable is it more comfortable to just say, surely it's not that gruesome? Surely it's not really happening? Or will there be individuals that are God-fearing and listen to God as He says that we are to be the ones that speak up for the speechless? And so here's the question that we must be asking at this time. Is the tissue in the womb a living human being. We need to be very honest with that. We need to be very fair with that question. Because if it is a living human being, then for all of us that believe in God and believe that the Holy Scriptures are true, that changes everything. We couldn't look if we sent several sermons looking at the passages that talk about life but let's just look at a few very quickly. First, let's begin with Genesis 1 and 27, the very beginning, our origin. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So number one, in this verse, we see our origin goes back to God. Because he is the creator, he made us. And what's powerful here is that he made man, not the animals, not the plant life, not the universe. He made man after his own image. And in Genesis 2 and 7, it even says that he breathed into man, into his nostrils, the breath of life. In other words, now we are like God in the sense that we can live on for an eternity. So is it a fetus or is it a child? In Psalms 139 and verse 13 and 14, the psalmist says, For you formed my inward parts. In other words, our insides. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. So the Lord has made us inside and out. Number two, He's placed us inside our mothers. God is the creator. And he does his creation of our lives inside our mothers. But then it's interesting when we look at the Hebrew for this word covered. When he says that he covered us by our mother's womb, that idea of cover is to protect. In other words, you may have a boat that you want to protect, and so you want it to be covered Maybe you, you build a garage. Maybe you buy a covering. You want it to be protected. That's the idea of this word here. God says, I want to place babies. I want to place them in a womb and there they'll be covered. There they'll be safe. And the sad irony is that now in America, the most dangerous place that a child could ever be 
is in the womb of a mother. One out of four children will not live through that. Genesis 9, this is very revealing. Noah has come off the ark. And notice what is said here in Genesis 9. Read with me, if you will, 3 through 7. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. You see, there's a difference in animal life and human life, because animal life can be food. It can be slain and eaten. Verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. That animal life should be prepared in a certain way. The blood should be removed from it. Verse 5, surely for your lifeblood, now we're changing the subject. Now it's not animals, now it's humans. For your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. See, if a beast takes a human life, the beast is to be punished. I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by the man his blood shall be shed. Why? What does all of this go back to? Now, brethren, I want you to see this. We're not saying, I think this is a great point. God is saying, I want to tell you why you can kill an animal and eat it, but you cannot kill a man and not be held responsible in the sight of God. And this is why. He's talking about man, and he says, for in the image of God, he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. On this next screen, we see the idea. God distinguishes between the values of life and animals, whether it's man or animal. And the punishment in the Old Testament was the death penalty. The human worth is due to the image of God, and humans are blessed by God through childbirth. And let's look at one more example and then one more teaching quickly. In Luke, the first chapter, in verse 41, it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb. Now notice what was in her womb. The babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Here the babe, the next, not the next time, but the next time that this word is used in the New Testament is talking about the babe Jesus who was wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger, and it's the very same word. In other words, God says what was in the womb was a babe, it was an infant. Whether it's born or not born, it is an infant. God informs us clearly of this. So does the Bible ever speak of abortion? Yes, in Job is one example. In Job the third chapter in verse 16, or like a miscarriage, and that would be the same word in Hebrew that could be translated abortion. Like a miscarriage or abortion which is discarded, I would not be. And then he describes the same thing again, and it's very telling the word that he chooses here. As infants that never saw light. And so in one sentence when he talks about a child in the womb, their life ending untimely is what the idea of miscarriage or abortion means. The life ends untimely. 
The very next verse he says, that life that ended in the womb untimely, that life is an infant. The same word that would be used to describe a baby, whether it's held in your arms or whether it is held in the womb. The 21-week-old fetus that was named Samuel Alexander Armas several years ago, even though this took place in Vanderbilt, this picture had national and worldwide attention. Many of you remember seeing it. A surgery was taking place. And it was during this surgery where first a C-section was the surgical procedure on the mother. And then the surgery to perform on the infant. And as Dr. Bruner cut into the child to do surgery, the child reached out and held his finger. You know, babies are born at 23, 24 weeks of age, and they survive. Are they something different because they're in the womb than when they're born? You see, the consistency tells us the truth. And what's interesting is one of the greatest challenges that some in our culture have today, but yet we don't because there is a consistency there. And that is the laws of fetal homicide laws in America. There's over 30 states in America, I believe it's 38 states in America, that if someone injures a woman who is with child, and that child dies, that person is charged with a homicide. So, for example, if, if a drunk driver hits a woman who is pregnant, crashes into her, takes her life, and the child dies also that's in her womb, in 38 states, that person is charged with a double homicide. Now, what's interesting, in 23 of those states, and Tennessee's included in both of these, what's interesting, in 23 of those states, it is from the point of conception. The child could be one day old in the womb, and they're still charged with homicide. Why? Because it is human life. Here's the inconsistency that is glaring. Isn't it interesting that if it is wanted, it's considered a baby? If it is wanted, it is considered a baby. You know, you see a pregnant lady and you might say to her, hey, when is your baby due? Hey, is your baby a little boy or a little girl? Hey, what, what are you going to name your baby? But yet in our society, there's quite a double standard because if the pregnancy is not wanted, many then declare it's not a baby and that abortion is a good option. LifeNews.com says, we not, may not be able to revive the skeletons in our closets, but we can at least 
open the closet. In the scripture in Proverbs 31 and 8, open your mouth for the speechless and the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. Today, I want to urge you to open your mouth. I want to urge you to open your mouth for those who do not have a voice. I want to urge you to care. I want to urge you to care even if it hurts. I want your compassion to move you out of your comfort zone. I want all of us to lift our hand up, head up out of the sand and make a difference in our community for those that have no voice. And so where does that bring us? That brings us to where we are right now in the state of Tennessee. Many of you have become or are becoming aware of Amendment 1. I want to emphasize to you a very important thing this morning. If you're a guest here this morning, you need to know this, and if you stick around for a long time, you'll see this proven. One thing that we do not do here is we do not preach politics. IRS wouldn't allow churches or 501c3s to advocate for candidates or parties. But even if they would, we wouldn't. But what we will do is we will stand for things that are moral. We will stand for things that are right. If we were under a dictatorship, we could look over to the rule of a dictator, and if that dictator made immoral decisions, we could point at them and say, shame on him, he's making immoral decisions. Welcome to a republic, the Republic of America. The vote, the power has been placed in the state of Tennessee in your hands. If you believe that it's immoral, you have the opportunity to go beginning October the 15th, early voting, November the 4th, election day itself, and you can vote for the right of life. That's not simple. And what we'll do is I will try to give you a description now and either this, after, this evening or next week on a Sunday evening. I'll try to give you more info on this Amendment 1. But what Amendment 1 is, Amendment 1 is Amendment to the State of Tennessee Constitution. And you might think, why does the State of Tennessee's Constitution need to be amended? Well, it didn't need to be amended before 2000. Now think with me of a quick timeline, and we can talk about this more later. In 1973, Roe v. Wade made man made abortion mandatory for all 50 states. It didn't matter what your state's position was on abortion. In January of 1973, your state had to change their position, and it had to be legal for all 50 states. Well, obviously, when something becomes legal, it also needs to be legislated. In other words, how are you going to make sure that these procedures are done in a way that protects the woman? And so out and from 1973, many and most states began to pass legislation to make things safe in the abortion industry. You can't ban it. Simply make it safe. And when I say you can't ban it, I mean under the U.S. Constitution. You can't ban it. And so there were laws to protect women, laws like there needs to be informed consent. Not just consent, 
But the abortion practitioner needs to sit down and describe how this is going to take place, what is the risk to you, and what will be the rehab that you will need to do over the next few days. Those simple things need to be a law that they have to be done. A second was a 48-hour waiting period. Let's give a woman 48 hours to think about what she's just been informed about before she makes the final decision to have an abortion. And then also the third law was that there needs to be a hospital-like environment for late-term abortions. In other words, when something goes wrong, now keep in mind, in abortion there's no desire to save the child's life. But in the abortion, something goes wrong. What about the woman? This is a surgical procedure at this point. Are there going to be personnel and equipment available to save this woman's life? Well, obviously in 1978, it was easy for those three things to be passed in the state of Tennessee. And they were. And several other states passed similar things. But in the late 90s, the ACLU and Planned Parenthood sued the state of Tennessee and 15 other states and said that those things are unconstitutional. And what they did, they knew they had an advantage in the state of Tennessee because the state of Tennessee's Supreme Justices, the state of Tennessee, not the U.S., the state of Tennessee's Supreme Justices were pro-life except for one. I'm sorry, were pro-abortion except for one. And so the result then was that they found, if you can imagine this, if you haven't read up on this, you ought to do yourself a favor and read up on it. They found the word privacy in the state constitution had nothing to do with abortion. Nothing at all. They found the word privacy and built a case on the word privacy that because of that word in the state constitution, a woman has a right to have an abortion and none of these other restrictions can be put in place. And so that law was passed. And what that did was made the state of Tennessee's practice of abortion broader than even Roe v. Wade. All of those laws that legislated it and kept it, quote, safe, now had to be removed because there's no teeth in the Constitution to enforce them. Do you realize that in the state of Tennessee today, an abortion clinic does not even have to be licensed? Therefore, they don't have to be inspected. You could run a slaughter clinic and no one in Tennessee can stop it. And for those few agencies that choose to license themselves, when they are inspected, they don't have to comply. And there's long rap sheets of recommendations that they are to do, but there's no teeth. And so they don't comply to any of it. You can't run a nail salon in the state of Tennessee without license and complying to inspections. You can't run a veterinarian practice. But all over eight places in the state of Tennessee presently, and a few of them are licensed, but they don't comply to the inspections. But throughout Tennessee, women are going for surgical procedures, outpatient procedures, with absolutely no enforcement of what is safe.
Do you need proof? The state of Tennessee has become a destination, as a matter of fact, for abortion. As a matter of fact, we are the capital of the Southeast for out-of-state abortions. There's only two other states in all 50 that have more out-of-state abortions than the state of Tennessee. We're going to skip several slides and go down to 2008. I want to give you an example of how this looks. I am sorry. I don't know what happened with the slides this morning. I'm sorry. In 2008, four states of the eight that surround us. Let me give you this example. Kentucky, Missouri, Mississippi, and Arkansas. They had, those four states had a combined total of 16,340 abortions. 16,340 abortions in four states that surround us. Tennessee had a total of 19,550. We had 3,000 more abortions than a combined four states around us, and their combined population is 10 million more than us. Listen, when we talk about the fact that Tennessee has some of the loosest standards of anyone in the U.S. as it pertains to abortion, the facts back it up and the statistics back it up. Because women know that they can drive the distance to Tennessee and get anything done that they want done immediately. Edmund Burks. He lived back in the 1700s, but the old Irishman said something that has lasted for years. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Do you believe in the sanctity of life? If you do, we have the opportunity to get involved and make a difference. So what can I do? Number one, I need to vote yes on Amendment 1. And if you go and vote and do not vote for Amendment 1, you have voted no because it's not a simple majority, it's a super majority, which means that all of the votes that are cast for the governor's race that this amendment has to have 50% plus one yes votes to win. It's not more votes than the no's. Everyone that doesn't vote, it's a no vote. And so if it were a simple majority, the state of Tennessee would have no problem passing this because we have many more that are pro-life than are not in the state of Tennessee. And then also second, if it was simple to understand this, it would be easy to pass. But the reading of it, because we are amending a constitution, is going to sound very legal. And if so, if someone has not been informed about what this amendment means, they're going to read it and say, I don't know what that means. I'm not going to vote at all. And so that not voting becomes a no vote. And so the second thing that I encourage you to do is educate others on Amendment 1. Tonight I'll read to you some myths that you're going to hear because... Planned Parenthoods from around the U.S. are funneling in hundreds of thousands. Well, to be truthful, it's going to end up being over $4 million that's going to be funded in to the state of Tennessee to run a TV campaign that's going to start about next week. And there are going to be so much rhetoric and deception that's going to be propagated on those ads. And so if we don't educate, 
they're going to educate and what they're going to say is not true. And I'll read you some of those myths tonight as we get started. But I want to encourage you to be educated and educate others. I want to encourage you to register to vote if you haven't. And then I want to encourage you to vote on this. And I'm not saying go vote for candidates. If you don't vote for any candidate, go. And the only thing you may choose to vote for is that one amendment. And it counts. Please go vote for Amendment 1. And I want to encourage you to pray. Set up out our tables in the foyer. Those tables give you the opportunity to pick up a yard sign if you want to be an advocate for this. They give you the opportunity to sign up so that your support is known. They give you the opportunity to register to vote. If you're 18 years of age this year, this is your opportunity to jump in on what could be one of the most important votes of your life. And I want to encourage all of you to consider early voting and, um, and, and make sure that we do all we can to get the word out. But what else can we do? We're closing, but are you listening? A few of our deacons and our ministers and elders have been brainstorming of ways we could be involved in helping promote adoption. You know, I heard a quote this past week from an ACLU member as it pertains to abortion, and there's been very few times in my life, this may be the only time I've heard a quote about abortion from an ACLU member that I agreed with. And, and I heard this live. It was on an interview. And she was kind of ranting. And she said, and to all of those pro-lifers out there that, that they want to say, we're going to save this baby, which that was interesting. You hardly ever hear a, a, a pro-abortion person speak of abortion and baby in the same sentence. They never call it a baby when they're speaking about abortion. And so I thought, wow, that got my attention. She just called that in the womb a baby. And, and she said... And she said, and so all of those, they don't want abortion. What they're going to have to do is they're going to have to go out there and adopt those babies. And I literally said out loud, amen. That's what we've been saying for years at the Mount Juliet Church of Christ. Don't talk about how much you're against abortion if you're not willing to support and be a part of the solution. And a part of the solution is to love those women that have an unwanted pregnancy. Walk with them, serve them, support them. And whatever they need for that baby, if they need someone to take that baby and raise it, let's be the people that rise up and say, we'll raise that baby and we'll take it as our own. Or if they simply need guidance and advice and support, let's be the ones that say that. And so because of that, it's been decided that next Sunday we will have a special collection. And that collection is going to be to create a fund within the Mount Juliet congregation that supports those that want to adopt that are a part of the Mount Juliet congregation. And in that, we hope, and it is our prayer and it is our intention, that there will be families that will rise up and say, we would love to be a part of adoption. And we really could use that help because the initial process of adoption is very expensive. We're thankful that the Kefs have just been home less than two weeks. Two beautiful children. We're thankful that the Whites are in the midst of adoption right now after just adopting another. And will it be you? Will your family, will your family adopt next? There are children all over this world. What they wake up and go to sleep to every day. 
is just wishing they had parents that loved them. We can put our head in the sand and act like it's not happening. Or we can rise up and feel the pain and do something about it. And I hope next Sunday, and I hope this month, they all do everything that we can do to make a difference. The sanctity of life. If you haven't been adopted into Christ, through Christ, as a brother of Christ, through the Spirit, by God the Father, why not? We want to encourage you this morning to come to Him. If you're ready to be baptized into Christ or you're ready to be restored, if we can help you in any way, maybe today's topic has stirred a lot of pain. I really am sorry. I really am. And if there's things that we can do to serve you, we're not here to condemn. We're here knowing that the only way that any of us is saved, any of us, is by the grace of God. We're all sinners. But we all can be redeemed.